So tonight I'm going to talk about working with emotions in our practice. And having said that, it's interesting, but right off the bat, there's a bit of a problem. What exactly are emotions? It might sound like a funny question because I'm guessing you're all sitting there, I know what emotions are. But it turns out that in the field of psychology, the central term has managed to resist precise definition. Noting that uh, efforts to concisely define this term in English have largely been unsuccessful. The uh, Penguin Dictionary of Psychology goes on to state that probably no other term in psychology shares its non-definability with its frequency of use. So there's a kind of amorphous nature to what we'll be talking about this evening. Other words in English that are sometimes used uh, interchangeably or um, are similar in some way with emotion are things like feeling, affect, mood, sentiment, and drive. For example, a mood is generally considered to be an emotion that just lasts for a long time. And perhaps it's because of this fuzziness to this concept that we have in English that in Buddhist terminology, there isn't a word for emotions. It's not a category. But that doesn't mean that um, we don't focus on emotions in our practice, in, our, in, in mindfulness practice. The Pali language just doesn't group them together under a single limited term. If we look more carefully at the Pali vocabulary for our practice, in fact, different emotions fall under different categories and in different ways. For example, anger is the translation for dosa, which is one of the three unwholesome roots for, or motivations for unskillful action. Joy is the translation for piti, which is an important element in the development of concentration that Richard was talking about last night, as well as a factor of enlightenment, one of the seven factors of enlightenment that I mentioned this afternoon. Mindfulness of emotions, then. When it comes to relating to our emotions, there's a common Western pop psychology perspective that we really just have two options when it comes to working with our emotions, especially really strong ones, that we can either express them, that is, externalize them, or we can repress them or internalize them. And I would suggest that Buddhism has actually brought to the, here to the West, to us here in the West, a new approach to emotions, a new way to relate to our emotions, in the Buddhist practice of being mindful, a practice that represents a middle way between repression and expression. John Kabat-Zinn offers a, a lovely image of mindfulness practice that, for me, fits especially well with working with emotions. John says, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. So how can we learn to surf the waves of our emotions? The basic notion here is that we can choose to simply pay attention to our emotional experience as it is happening. Instead of acting out our emotions or pushing them down beneath our conscious awareness, we simply let our emotions be just the way they are, while carefully noticing just how that is. I work with a lot of children in my practice and a few teens as well. And a few years ago, I was explaining to a nine-year-old who I had, a nine-year-old boy who was a client of mine, and I had been teaching him mindfulness. And so I was going to introduce mindfulness of emotion. So I was explaining this uh, perspective we have in the West about how um, we really think that there are two options. We can either express or we can repress our emotions. But even before I could describe this mindful approach 
of the middle way between, he kind of blurted out, yeah, but we could just let him sizzle. <laughs> and then one of my teen clients, after I described being mindful, described this middle possibility of being mindful to him, I actually was able to describe it to him. And he said, you know, it sounded like just letting him simmer. Just let your emotions simmer. Now, whether we're being mindful of an emotion and it's sizzling or simmering may have to do with the intensity of the emotion that's happening at that moment, which is a dimension of our emotional experience that hopefully we're including in our mindfulness. So surfing, sizzling, simmering, three metaphors that I hope that you might find useful as you explore this expansion of your mindfulness to include the emotional dimension of your experience. And tonight I'd like to share with you several mindfulness-based approaches to working with emotions that I found useful both in my own practice and when teaching mindfulness to adults, teens, and children, whether in a therapeutic context or in an educational context. And the first mindfulness emotion Mindfulness of emotion exercise that I'd like to share tonight comes from the secular mindfulness-based stress reduction or MBSR tradition. It's based on an acronym, the acronym STOP. The S in the acronym stands for stopping what you're doing. The T is for take a few mindful breaths. This step helps us to reconnect experientially with the here and now. The O is for observe your mind, observe your body. And in this step, you simply notice how your mind is feeling and give it a one or two word label. Since I often introduce stop to students or clients right after we've done a short period of mindfulness together, sometimes people think, that when we get to the O, I'm fishing for some kind of um, positive emotional state that will validate the mindfulness practice that we've done. For example, peaceful or calm or relaxed. But I'm not. So I go on to say that there's really no right answer. I'm, I'm really just looking for how they are actually feeling right now, which could be sad or happy, angry or peaceful, bored, we're excited. And as it turns out with this particular exercise, sometimes I get answers that aren't really emotions, that they don't really fit under the umbrella of this word emotion. For example, I might hear that someone is feeling sleepy or hungry. Fair enough. Psychologically, that would be more considered drives than emotions. But that's okay because drives and sentiments and moods and these other words, affects, that are related in some way to emotions, they all are just fine um, to include in these mindfulness approaches to working with our emotions. In fact, even the hindrances that Richard was talking about the other night, you can use the practices that I'm teaching tonight for them as well. Once they've let me know that they have their word for their emotional state, I ask them to notice how their body is feeling. And I ask them to particularly notice any parts of the body that are calling out for their attention. And then lastly, I ask them to notice if they feel any connection between these two, between the state that in their mind that they've identified and the sensation that's calling for their attention in the body. And again, I make it clear that I'm not fishing for a yes or for any particular body part, but just for their actual experience in the present moment. The P then is for proceed with what's best, most appropriate, most skillful. You get to fill in the blanks. The big advantage of this practice is that it allows us to step back from our emotional state, that is, to disidentify from it to a certain extent, 
often our emotional state is in the driver's seat. And it determines to a large degree how we behave in an almost automatic pilot way. I think Richard was talking a bit about being on automatic pilot the other night. And oftentimes when we're on automatic pilot, it's the emotion that's doing the driving. By turning to attend mindfully to our emotion in, of the moment, our mindfulness actually takes over the job of driving. From this perspective, we have a chance to look at our emotions and consciously decide if we want to let the emotion of the moment determine our actions or not. So what I'd like to suggest is that we just take a moment and together practice this simple, what I think of as a mindfulness of emotions break. So I'll stop the Dharma talk and focus on giving instructions. That will be the S. In a daily life situation, you would simply stop what you were doing. And now we'll take a few mindful breaths. That's the T. Now observe your mind. See if you can find one word that best describes your emotional state or mood in this moment. And when you have your word, raise your hand. Now observe your body. What part of your body is calling out most strongly for your attention? Next, notice if there's a relationship between that body part and the emotion or mood that you identified. That's the O for observe. The P stands for proceed with what's best. In everyday situations, you would now decide what to do. How are you going to proceed from this moment? I think I'll proceed with a few more words about stop. I suggest that you begin to incorporate this practice of stop a few times a day these last few days of the retreat. And then continue to use this practice as a practice to punctuate your daily activities with many mindfulness breaks once you've returned home. This practice of stop is particularly good to use when you're doing walking meditation. Let's say you're, you're walking and something comes up in your mind, pulls you away from paying attention to the sensations in your feet. So you could stop, take a mindful breath or two to reconnect, and just notice what's going on in your mind. Notice what emotion is there. Notice how your body feels. And then most likely you'd continue with your walking, although you could, when you got to the pee, decide it was time to do something else. Initially, it can be useful to practice stop at random times just to get the hang of it. Once you feel comfortable with stop, you can begin to experiment with using it at moments when really challenging emotions have arisen. And for those of you who work with children, of all the mindfulness exercises that I've used with the kids that I work with, both in school settings and in my therapy practice, stop is the exercise that I've found to be most helpful. A lot of kids just really, they, they use it, first of all. They use it outside the therapy session, outside the classroom, and they report back on their experience. And it's really gratifying to have that happen and to see the difference it makes in their lives. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about the practice that Leslie introduced this morning, the practice of RAIN. And this is a practice that is especially useful on retreat, 
and also during formal sitting practice back at home. And the practice um, goes by this acronym of RAIN. And as Leslie mentioned, is developed by a Vipassana teacher, a longtime friend of mine named Michelle McDonald-Smith. And I've actually been using RAIN myself for just a few years. I only learned about it a few years ago, um, both in my practice and in the teaching that I've been doing. And I, I only recently learned that Michelle was the one who created it. And that being said, I'm not really sure if my particular way of teaching RAIN is exactly the way that Michelle developed it. So if you happen to know her version, or you hear her version later, any discrepancies between her way of teaching it and my version are completely my fault. <laughs> so in, in RAIN, as Leslie described, the R stands for recognize. And I, actually, I'd just like to say that um, tonight we could also say that the R stands for repetition. The other night I was talking about the importance of repetition in our practice. And so today I'm kind of bringing this exercise that Leslie introduced back. I'm repeating it because I think it might be useful for you to hear it again. So we recognize that an emotion is happening and we make the emotion the focus of mindful attention as what's happening right now. And then we give the emotion a one or two word linguistic label that happens to best fit the particular emotion we're experiencing. The A stands for attend, accept, and allow. With recognize, we're already attending to the emotion of the, motion, of the moment. And after applying a label to it, we continue our mindful attention to the emotion. Accepting the emotion just as it is, really is about accepting that it's this emotion that is what's happening right now. This is the present moment experience, just accepting that. And we're also on the lookout as we accept it for any aversion or any resistance to the emotion that might be there in our mind. And if we notice any aversion or resistance or any tendency to say attached to the emotion, we can simply let go of that and refocus on the emotion itself. Or we could include the aversion, the resistance or the attachment in our mindful attention. We could also label them as such. And having accepted that this emotion is what's happening, we now allow it to be as it wishes to be, to change if it wishes to change. We let it do what it wants to do. We could call this, given the emotion, its autonomy. Just like we do with our breath, we let the breath go however it wants to go, and we just pay attention to it. We can do the same thing with this emotion, this present moment emotion. So these practices of accepting, allowing the emotion, its autonomy, are aspects of our cultivation of equanimity that we were talking about this afternoon. Equanimity towards this particular emotion and this particular version of that emotion, this particular experience of that emotion as well. I should be clear that at this point I'm, I'm talking about giving the emotion its autonomy as an internal experience not as a form of expression. We're letting it be what's happening within us. And we're letting it be within us and however it wants to be within us. And it's um, giving, uh, at this point, uh, where we're considering giving the emotion autonomy, we need to be a bit careful. Because some emotions are really powerful. And for some of us, certain emotions can really get the better of us. Like if, if, for example, you have a tendency toward depression or anxiety, then you want to be really careful about this particular point. And I would suggest that you practice RAIN with other emotions first until you really feel like you're, you're skillful at being with the emotion using this mindful process before you try it with your most challenging emotions. And if you try it with a challenging emotion, and, and you try it a few times, and the emotion keeps getting the better of you, maybe back off, 
build that skill with easier emotions again before you come back to the challenging ones. So this particular practice, this aspect of RAIN of attend, accept, and allow is the one that most reminds me of surfing. In these moments, we let go of any effort to control the wave of our current emotional experience. But carefully, we try to stay with with it as it moves us forward, doing our best to maintain our balance in the face of the emotion's power. And if we get knocked off our mindful surfboard, so to speak, which will surely happen again and again, we just simply get back on and catch the next wave. Just like we do with our other mindfulness practices. The I in RAIN stands for investigate. How does this emotion really feel? Is it pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant in feeling tone? Is it fixed? Or is it changing? Is it dynamic? If it's dynamic, how is it changing? Is it changing in intensity? Is it fading away? Is it fluctuating? Is it changing into some other emotional state? Where is it located? Is this emotion associated with any bodily sensation that's happening right now? How intense, how energetic is this present moment version of this emotion? Is it sizzling or simmering? We invest, with investigation, we begin to experience, we bring to this experience of this emotion an attitude of inquiry and curiosity about this particular emotion as well as the, this particular episode of it. So each time we have a particular emotion, let's say anger, it might be a little different than the last time we had it. So we want to really pay close attention to just how it's happening. So in this exercise of RAIN, we're cultivating a willingness to turn towards our emotions, a capacity to be with them as an aspect of our inner experience, to let them just simmer or sizzle with a deepening equanimity and a growing investigative curiosity as they're actually happening. The N in RAIN stands for natural but not self. Emotions are not permanent. They're not lasting. Investigating our emotional experience, we notice in our own direct experience and for ourselves that emotions are impermanent. So often in the midst of a powerful emotion, there's the strong impression that maybe even though even, even, even the thought comes that I may be stuck with this emotion forever, for the rest of my life. It's not going to go away. It feels like that. It can be very powerful. And in cognitive behavioral therapy, we might call this tendency, this kind of thought, catastrophizing. We're making it worse than it actually is. But over time, mindful investigation of this kind proves otherwise. And not only do our emotional states not last, but careful, mindful investigation shows that even while they are there, while they are present, while they're persisting for a time, even then, they're dynamic. They're constantly changing. And as such, emotions are not who or what I am, but rather something that happens to me. From our mindful stance as the witness to our emotions, it becomes clear that we are not our emotions. Rather, our emotions happen to us much as the weather happens to the sky. In fact, it can be quite useful to look at our emotional states as our own personal weather, so to speak. Some meditation sessions are cloudy, others are stormy. Yet others are sunny with a cool, refreshing breeze. Through it all, We witness our emotional weather mindfully. You might even, at the end of each meditation, just kind of reflect that, okay, so what was the weather this session? The last aspect of the end for rain is that emotions are naturally occurring a normal part of our lives as a human being. 
They're important common human denominators. They make us human and they make us like all other humans, thus connecting us to the rest of humanity rather than isolating us or making us unique. Actually, the details of our story may be unique, but the emotions that come along with it that are at its core are deeply human. This particular expression of the in as natural is actually more of a reflection on emotions than it is, let's say, a direct mindful experience. But it can be a very potent reflection and one that I'll come back to in a few minutes. I'd like to uh, suggest that as you explore this practice of RAIN over the next few days, as a way of being mindful of emotions in your, with your practice, that when you notice that an emotion has emerged in your experience, you turn towards it mindfully in this way. And by the way, I'll be posting copies of the steps in RAIN and also the steps in STOP in a couple of places in the center here tonight so that you can refer to them as you need for the rest of the retreat. As we've been discussing and exploring, when we bring mindfulness to our emotional experience, we're changing our relationship to our emotions. When we shift to mindfulness of our emotion, we take back control of the steering wheel. So with RAIN, we mindfully allow our emotions as a kind of sensory experience of the mind. You know, in, in Buddhism, we think of having six senses. There's the five physical senses that we all know of, of seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, and tasting. And then there's the mind, which is considered to be a sense organ. And the objects of the mind are like thoughts, emotions, dreams, imagery. And so when we're turning to our emotions, we're really attending to our mind as a sense door. So when we turn to our emotions in this way and we give them an inner autonomy, we can also take this step of the process a bit further. And that involves a subtle difference between accepting and allowing our emotions. On the one hand, and what a friend of mine, um, Richard Miller, who's a psychologist and yoga nidra teacher, calls welcoming our emotions on the other. And I encourage you to explore this subtle difference in your own experience. What does it feel like to just accept and allow an emotion to be there? And what would it feel like to actually welcome that emotion to your experience? Perhaps the best articulation of this shift in attitude from, um, from just attending to and accepting and allowing our emotions to that of welcoming is found in one of my favorite poems by Rumi called The Guest House. And so I'd like to read it to you. Sounds like some of you are familiar with it. This being human is like a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. When we really welcome our emotions of the moment, they do sometimes guide us in unexpected and insightful directions. And I'd like to share with you a couple of examples from my own practice to illustrate how powerful this approach to working with emotions can be. And the first example took place many years ago back in the the late 1970s while I was on staff at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. 
It was just a few years after it had opened, maybe a year or so after it had opened, actually, and I was working as the manager there. And I'd, I'd uh, taken an interest in a young woman who'd come to do a retreat. And she'd invited me to visit her in Providence, where she lived, and we quickly became romantically involved. And after a few months of dating, however, the relationship ended painfully, grounded to a degree, uh, in a degree of deceit on her part. It turned out that she had had another boyfriend that she hadn't told me about, one of many years. And she'd been thinking about leaving him when she met me, but she hadn't really done so. And under mounting pressure from her friends and family, she eventually decided to give that relationship another chance. So the odd man out, I was heartbroken. And for a month or so, I struggled with the emotions of loss, grief, depression, self-doubt, and anger. Among the most intense that I'd experienced up until that point in my life. I was maybe 25 at the time. Around that same time, I traveled to Massachusetts. I traveled from Massachusetts, where the Insight Meditation Society is, to New York City to sit a week-long Zen session or meditation retreat with Sasaki Roshi at a Zen center in downtown Manhattan. And as I sat one afternoon working on my koan, which is kind of a riddle that in that tradition they give people to work with as their meditation practice, the grief of the loss of the relationship and the intense pain of separation and the deep yearning for connection came back with a vengeance. So I dropped my Zen koan practice and I turned to mindfully face these intense emotions instead. Resolving to just let them be, to let them give me their best shot, so to speak, I welcomed them as fully as I was able at that time. I, at that point, I hadn't heard the guest house. So I, maybe I wasn't quite as hospitable as Rumi would have suggested. <laughs> I didn't exactly greet these emotions laughing at the door <laughs> as I invited them in. Nor was I feeling particularly grateful for their presence. But I was able to turn to face them, to welcome them fully in their intensity. And shortly, my experience shifted. I became aware of a vision of a human infant wet and writhing in discomfort in the space in front of me, just right in front of me like this. But no sooner had I noticed the appearance of this infant than my perspective shifted, and I now was that infant. And it was my own small limbs that were kicking, and my own weak voice crying out in protest, yearning to be joined anew. And the pain I was feeling was the pain of birth of having been forcibly expelled from a deep, comforting connection with my mother. And then in the midst of the intense suffering of separation, I felt this remaining connection at my abdomen. And with it, there was some solace and relief. But just as I had discovered this remaining link, it was completely and painfully severed with a sharp metallic object. The suffering then intensified even more. And after a time, the visionary experience subsided, and I was back on my zafu in the zendo. And having gone deeply into the pain of a relationship's end, the yearning to return to the feeling of intimate connection that that relationship had briefly given me, suddenly my experience had moved to a much deeper level. Then, years later, while I was working at a Spirit Rock, actually, and I was preparing to teach um, to Guy Armstrong's senior students class, I was going to be teaching about this topic of dependent origination, and I had a similar kind of experience. I tend to recognize myself in the descriptions of a particular character type. And you might know it it as the... um, Enneagram type five, or maybe you know it from uh, Stephen Johnson's book on Freudian character styles as the schizoid character type. And a strong characteristic of this particular type can be 
a deep recurring fear often described as the fear of annihilation. So during my sitting one morning, I began again to feel the various stressors in my life. The stressors that were there at that particular time. I had a full-time job at Spirit Rock. I was the associate director. Um, I was a full-time graduate student. There were the challenges of married life. And then there was anxiety about this public speaking engagement that I had to deal with. And I found myself experiencing this sense that the universe was imploding in on me. I felt trapped inside this externally applied pressure, this heaviness. It was as if someone had actually turned up the atmospheric pressure. It was very unpleasant, immobilizing, claustrophobic, and, and it, was, it produced a lot of anxiety. But I had actually become very familiar with it. And so this particular morning, I was able to work with it. As I was sitting, just resting in this, this feeling of impending annihilation, doing my best to simply let it be, accepting it fully, I mindfully welcomed it into my guest house, so to speak. And again, my practice shifted into visual imaginal mode. This time, the image of a fetus arose, still in the womb, but ready to be born and trying to break out. Next, I again found myself identified with this image. The womb feels oppressive, prison-like. I am the fetus struggling to get out, to break free, to be born. And as the struggle continues, I begin to feel some progress. First my head emerges, then my shoulders, and finally my whole body pops out and birth is complete. I'm free from the oppressive prison that the womb had become. And then suddenly, my experience shifted again. Having escaped, now feeling separate, having achieved my goal, that too is unpleasant. Craving arises again, but this time, it's the desire to reconnect. we really go into our emotional experience with equanimity and even a welcoming attitude, what do we find? Deep underlying pools of desire and aversion, out of which intense emotion pours forth. Sensory experience giving rise to feeling tone, then craving and clinging, thus tapping into these deep pools of energy. Desire and aversion each in their turn dependent on the feeling tone of the present moment experience. So these two great forces of desire and aversion come from deep within the fabric of life, from our very biological roots in this lifetime, drawing even from the experience of our physical birth itself. At the moment of our birth, there are already these deep pools of energy giving life to powerful patterns, intense habits, strong inclinations towards this clinging that, as Richard described last night, gets us into trouble. I find that when I can really welcome whatever guest has come in this way, just as Rumi suggests, frequently the guest becomes my guide and takes me into some new territory of insight. And often this involves some form of imagery. And working with this kind of imagery that emerges can also be a powerful tool when it comes to emotions in the course of mindfulness practice. But um, we just don't have time to go into how to do that this evening. But I would like to just mention in passing one resource that you might be interested in checking out. And it comes from a woman named Lama Sultram Alioni, who is an American Tibetan Buddhist teacher in Colorado. And um, she's developed a practice 
that is sometimes used as a psychotherapeutic intervention called feeding your demons that works extensively with emotions through imagery. It's a really powerful kind of practice. So beyond simple accepting and allowing our emotions, beyond efforts to investigate our emotional experience, we can work towards actually welcoming whatever emotion comes our way. And then we can fine-tune our mindful welcoming of our emotions in our practice in several further ways. The first is to mix in loving kindness and compassion. We've been practicing um, Brahma Viharas, and, and these two Brahma Viharas are especially helpful in relation to our emotions. We can direct these qualities towards our emotional state. So you're feeling anxiety, and you can direct the quality of loving kindness towards the feeling of anxiety. It can be very useful. So by adding loving kindness and compassion to our stance of the mindful witness, connecting with the felt sense of these two divine abodes, we direct that feeling from our heart towards the anxiety that you're experiencing, wherever you might find it, wherever it's located. It might be located in some part of your body. It might feel like it's a, a, a mental experience. You can direct it to wherever you find it. This mindfulness of your anxiety, together with the kindness and compassion directed towards it, are the first two of three parts of a relatively new psychotherapy intervention called mindful self-compassion. And you may remember that when describing the in and rain, I said I'd come back to the in, talk about it a little bit. And this in that I talked about standing for natural. Now reflect for a moment that this anxiety that we're working with, assuming we're working with some anxiety, and that you've welcomed the anxiety with loving kindness and compassion, and you're being mindful of it, you can notice that this this anxiety we're feeling is just simply a human emotion. It's a natural part of the common repertoire of emotions that all of us as humans have at our disposal. And as such, experiencing this emotion actually connects you with every other human being, with the rest of the human race. And rather than isolating you or making you unique or different in some way, having this anxiety actually affirms your membership in the family of humanity. In fact, if you think about it, given that there's something like seven to eight billion of us on the planet, when you're feeling anxiety, you can be quite sure that there's probably at least a million other people somewhere on the planet feeling anxiety at just the same time. This reflection on the common humanity of our situation, in this case, our shared emotional nature, adds this third element this practice of mindful self-compassion to our mindfulness of emotions. And just to review then, mindful self-compassion has these three elements. Mindfulness of our present moment experience, directing loving kindness and compassion towards our own experience, and a recognition of our connectedness through our common humanity. And this approach of mindful self-compassion is a powerful tool that you can use with challenging emotional states. And just as we've touched on the benefits of mindfulness and the Brahma Viharas for teacher and therapist self-care, this practice combines two of these, mindfulness and self-compassion, and adds, further enhances their self-care capacity by adding this further one of recognizing our common humanity. So this shift from accepting and allowing to welcoming reminds me of yet another approach to working with emotions that comes from a psychotherapy modality called Emotionally Focused Therapy, or EFT, which is not to be confused with another EFT, 
called emotional freedom technique, which is a form of energy psychology where it involves tapping on acupressure points. So it's not that EFT, it's a different one, if you happen to know that one. And I want to say first that I'm, I'm not trained in emotionally focused therapy. So it's quite possible that what I'm about to present doesn't necessarily represent exactly how EFT would be used. But I ran into a general description of this EFT approach when I was working on um, doing research for a, a, a different psych, on different psychotherapy modalities, planning a training that Leslie and I were doing a couple years ago. And the description I found read something like this. In emotionally focused therapy, the client learns to identify, experience, explore, make sense of, transform, and flexibly manage their emotions. So actually, identifies really just the same as recognize in RAIN. And experience is the equivalent of attend to, accept, and allow. Explore is another way to say investigate. And make sense of is very much like some of the aspects of the in in RAIN. While flexibly manage is really a lot like proceed with what's best and stop. But where this EFT model really hit home for me is with the addition of transform. For me, this is another piece that's missing in RAIN, a further development that we can take this process of being mindful of our emotions. So I'd like to talk just a bit about adding this piece to our practice. Actually, even in RAIN, there's the beginning of the possibility of transformation. With the A, we attend to, accept, and allow our emotion of the moment to do what it wants to do. And when we give it free reign, we may witness it change in various ways. Our emotion of the moment may fade in intensity or actually intensify. It may just simply disappear or shift into some other kind of experience. But the transformation I'm talking about is different. I'm not actually sure how in the EFT model they teach about transformation about transforming emotions, but I know what has happened in my own practice. And the transformation that I refer to requires a gentle shift in our relationship to our emotion or mood of the moment, which nudges us further in the direction that Rumi suggests. This approach makes the welcoming of our emotions even a bit more intimate. The image I find helpful to describe this shift is to embrace the emotion of the moment. You might imagine actually taking your present moment emotion in your arms and just cradling it to your heart, just like you would your own infant child. With this possibility, when we do this, In my own practice, what I find is by adding this element of embracing the emotion, the emotion itself often transforms in a deeply healing manner. And with this possibility of deep transformation, this practice of mindfulness of emotions becomes alchemical in nature. The very same emotions that so often are at the core of our suffering become the raw material for deeper spiritual understanding. So I'd like to share a metaphor from the Tibetan tradition that speaks to this alchemical process. In this metaphor, our challenging emotions, the places we tend to get stuck in life and in practice are like ice. And our mindfulness is like the warmth of sunlight. Attending mindfully to our stuck places in this way, embracing them in this intimate way of holding them, they tend to melt like ice into water. The metaphor of watching ice melt into water is showing us that if it's water we want, if we're interested in healing and transformation, we don't want to throw away the ice. Rather, we let the compassionate warmth of our mindfulness melt our frozen places. 
Ari Goldfield, who teaches in the Tibetan tradition in San Francisco, likes to say that the more ice we have, the more water, the more transformation we get. He goes on to say that when we have confidence in this approach, then the more places that we can find where we feel stuck inside, where we feel contracted, the places that we're not connecting with in ourselves, then the more potential there is for this liberating kind of transformation. So, so, so from this perspective, he reminds us that nothing in our experience needs to be discarded. Even our most difficult emotions, even our scariest life situations are workable. Even more than workable, they can become guides from beyond. Formal meditation practice often provides us with a context within which unmetabolized emotions naturally arise into consciousness. And this is true for retreat practice, as I'm guessing many, if not all of you, have recognized over the past several days. And it's also true as well in our daily formal sitting practice. Whenever we stop our usual activities of life, especially when we do so with the intent to attend more carefully, more deeply to our own experience, what we might call experiential space is created in the mind. And when this happens, unprocessed experience, especially undigested emotions, like my feelings of loss during that session in New York City, sometimes naturally and spontaneously come forth from the unconscious to fill the void. When that happens to you, I suggest that you take Rumi's advice. Welcome these emotions in as guests in your guest house and embrace them with loving and compassionate mindfulness. So that's the talk for this evening. Um, How are we doing for time? Uh, We have about 15 minutes before the next sitting. I think there's about 15 minutes before the next sitting. So come back at 9 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.